Okay, so I do have a slight apology to be had because we have a fair amount of feedback on a comment that I made in last week's episode. Uh, I regret the error. I think half flippantly suggested that there was only one carrier <laughs> in the UK that supports visual voicemail, but there's actually three. Uh, unfortunately, none of the three that I use, but there are three. Uh, EE, O2, and Sky. And EE and O2 are probably like the biggest carriers in mm-hmm. this country. So there you go. The one I thought, oh, the one I knew had it was O2, but um, then there was EE and Sky. I use a carrier called Plusnet, which is like a MVNO um, for EE. I don't know if you have MVNOs in America. Oh, yeah, we do. They always okay, get yeah. bought. But they're basically... But, yeah. Yeah, is that like Mint Mobile kind of situation yeah. where like they run on like T-Mobile or whatever? Yeah, but then they got so bought by Plusnet recently, so and then they end up getting bought yeah. out. Yeah, um, so Plusnet runs on the EE network, uh, but I don't get any of the nice EE features like Visual Voicemail, which is kind of sad. But Sky is a supported Visual Voicemail carrier, and they run off O2 and they do or EE and they do. So for whatever reason, those three do support it. None of the other UK carriers uh, do. There is a nice... One of our uh, listeners uh, sent a nice little link that I'll put in the show notes, which is wireless network provider support and features for iPhone Europe on Apple.com, which lists every European country and every um, subset of feature that they support. So you can get an up-to-date list on there on exactly what they support from, you know, visual voicemail, Wi-Fi calling, personal hotspot, 5G, that kind of thing, eSIM, etc. But yeah, the the UK support for visual voicemail is slightly better than one. Are you going to type out your apology in like the Apple Notes app and screenshot it and share it on Twitter? Mm, well, well, I mean, what social network do you put it That's on these true. days? <laughs> Where does the Notes app go? Well, you can't even tell that it's a Notes app apology anymore because they changed the background, so it's just like the white the white background now. It's just bad. It's just bland. Yeah. yeah. And Twitter does Twitter technically does let you type like more characters if you pay for it or whatever. I guess that'd be eight dollars a month. The modern way to do it. Eight dollars a month to avoid getting canceled. <laughs> but yeah I, I regret the error so mayo what is your home pod setup nowadays because i have some complaints about about how multiple home pods have been working together recently for me but what do you what is your setup with home pods right so i have a stereo pair in the living room which is paired to the apple tv and uses the tv speakers um and obviously just like music or whatever in that room uh, when the tv is not on if i had an abundance of space probably would just have like dedicated tv speakers and then a home pod just on the other side of the room for you know the voice command stuff mm-hmm. uh, but given the you know the room layout or whatever it like it's nice to be all in one and it's kind of cool that the same speakers that drive the tv can also be like spoke to with your voice and you can just like say you know siri turn the tv on and off and when you stand right next to it so it's quite it's quite handy but if i had like the perfect setup you probably would have dedicated tv speakers but i make do with the home pods and they do for, for their size or whatever they're pretty good so i have a stereo pair connected to the apple tv in the living room and then in the kitchen i have the uh a stereo pair of home pods uh on like a shelf so they basically do like um podcasts and music while i'm cooking mm-hmm. uh the 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 ones in the la- the ones in the kitchen are the ones i used to have in my office which is so they're the og ones i've had since 2018 and somehow have not broken and now are subjected to the the rarest steam and heat <laughs> of the kitchen somehow still survive so i'm very thankful for that uh, the living room ones are the second gen. So I mix OG, a pair of OGs and a pair of second gens, which are the second gens that are connected to the TV. And you don't have any HomePod minis? At the moment, I don't have any HomePod minis. So my setup is similar to that, I think, but I have a few HomePod minis scattered throughout. And I will say the two OG HomePods that I have connected to my Apple TV in a stereo pair 
those are by far the most reliable ones for whatever reason. Like, I don't know about you, but when they're a stereo pair for the Apple TV, they're just rock solid. No problems, no lag. And even, and that was a feature too that they added after the fact, remember? And that works so well. But the, yeah, they added they added home theater support for Apple TV after, after it had been cancelled, yeah. after it had been discontinued, and it, yeah. and it works so well, and I and I love it. But the rest of them, I, I've mentioned this on the show before, but the the thing that annoys me about that setup is the commands you can ask to Siri uh, through the Apple TV is different to the commands you can ask to Siri through the HomePods connected to the Apple TV. So uh, some stuff, yeah. if you so if you ask for um, like the weather, right? It doesn't bring up the Apple TV's weather interface on the screen. It'll ask on the on the sound, for instance. You have to use the remote if you want to bring it up on the screen. And then if you ask for watching like live channels, which is not something I do very often, but it's technically a supported feature of the Apple TV Siri, right? So if you if you ask the Apple TV remote switch to BBC One Live, it will do it. If you ask that exact same command to the HomePods, i.e., just saying you know the the wake word or whatever, not using the the remote button, it doesn't know what you're talking about, even though oh, they are yeah. connected together. So that is an area of improvement, and there are like they're the, they're like the big cases, but it definitely like trickles down too, where just like stuff you can ask the TV is different to stuff you can ask the HomePod about the TV, and vice versa. Some stuff does work, but other stuff doesn't. So it gets annoying when you're in like you know the long tail of that. Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I can't really complain. It's a it's a pretty good setup. So yeah, my Apple TV HomePods work great, but the rest of them recently have just been so buggy and frustrated to the point that I actively avoid using them so i think what really just set me off was last weekend i was doing some cleaning around the house so i had from my iphone i had music going to homepod in the kitchen our spare bedroom our bedroom the living room then one like auxiliary like we call it the study homepod and the amount of things and the amount of time that it took to get that to quote unquote work properly just trying to set it up it was ridiculous so so you were doing multi-room at the same time to each speaker? Yes, exactly. Okay, yeah. So you go on your iPhone, you go to the AirPlay menu, you go through and select each of the HomePods you want to connect to. I guess you could tell Siri to play it in rooms X, Y, and Z, but I assume that would have messed up the process even more. So you go to the control center, choose which HomePods you want to connect to, go back to the music app, choose something to play, and it doesn't start playing. It like I don't know if you've seen this to where you press something to play and it shows up in the little bottom navigation bar, but the play button just remains a play button. Like the playback mm-hmm. never actually kicks in. Yeah. So then you hit that a few times, force quit the music app. Sometimes have to go back and reselect all the home pods again. Then I hit play and it starts like coming out of one speaker but not the other ones. Then another one joins in, but they're the tracks aren't properly aligned. Then when you go to change a song or add something to the queue, it's like all bets are off. (laughs) You never know what's going to happen. You never know if the songs are going to get added to the queue, when they're going to get played. It's just not a good experience anymore. It's like you tap one wrong button and the whole thing falls apart. Or even you tap the right button and the thing falls apart. It's like you never know what exactly is going to happen and if it's going to work. And it, I do think it varies. Like some people will be listening and ha- do the exact same thing and it works fine. I don't know the exact conditions and when it breaks down. Uh, I have had exactly what you say happen yeah. to me in the past, but more recently it hasn't happened to me. I don't really know why. Like my kitchen speakers, the OG HomePods, when I first, because obviously the HomePod second gen came out in what, 
January, February of this year, right? Right. So yeah. as soon as they came out, I because my OGs were previously connected to the TV, so I moved them to the the kitchen. And the first like month or so they were in there, they would be really slow. They would do exactly what you say, where you like tell them to play a song and like control it through the phone, and the play button just wouldn't change to the pause button. Like they would just like get stuck and yeah. just not do anything, and then you know. 30 seconds of the song they'd finally start playing or you'd have to like tell it to do it again like that weirdness um i was having you know fed quite a lot and you know you think it might be like wi-fi signal strength or something but and to be fair the kitchen is probably the room that has the worst wi-fi and it also gets interference from like the microwave or whatever else but um i haven't moved them i haven't done anything right. and I left it a little while and then suddenly it seems to work pretty well. And like, <laughs> as of about a yeah. month ago, it was like really fast, like almost faster than, probably faster than the TV one where it responds for who knows what reason. But the OG HomePods feel like super good again. I was like, oh, because when they started doing it in uh, February, I was like, oh, is this like the beginning of the end? <laughs> uh, but then they've like come back, they've like rejuvenate themselves. So I do think the, some combination of which HomePods you have active what your Wi-Fi signal strength is to each individual HomePod and the Wi-Fi router itself, depending on how it routes the traffic, has some influence on this. Yeah. And so depending on the, the environment you're in, it, you can get different results. And some people can have it work perfectly fine and it's flawless. And then you are, when you have problems, you have exactly what you get. Because when, when, like, for instance, if there is one HomePod on that, on that multi-room um, like group that is getting poor reception, it will block the others from starting. So basically, if one's right. down, yeah. the whole thing doesn't work. Um, so as an overall rule, I would say that the multi-room support is probably the weakest part of the HomePod in terms of like, like when I suggest, when I, you know, if someone asked me to recommend a HomePod, I probably wouldn't say like, well, you can play it in multiple rooms at the same time. Like you can do it, but it's not as good as like a dedicated like Sonos setup, I'd argue, because um, they just seem like super, super like trained on that. Whereas I feel like the HomePod's multi-room audio is kind of limited by the fact that it also at least in theory, works with any AirPlay 2 speaker. So, like, it's not yeah. like a HomePod-specific thing. It's like an AirPlay 2 thing. And then that limits um, some of the optimizations that Apple can do. So you end up in these situations where you're kind of at the mercy of the Wi-Fi network, I think. But then you can have, like, you can... I, everything I just said is true, but also you can literally, like, audit every single HomePod and it can be saying it's getting, like, full network full network signal when it can still have issues. So, like, uh, I would 100% get where you were coming from there. Uh, I can't say I can reproduce the issues right now, but you know, in six months' time, maybe yeah. it's in a in a in a Swiss again. Yeah. And something else too that was frustrating was trying to match the volume between each of the HomePods. So you want each in the multi-room setup to be playing at the same volume, so you don't go from the living room where the music's nice and loud, and you go to the bedroom and it's like basically silent, just because that was the last setting of that HomePod. But Mayo, you told me about. Very discoverable, used to be 3D touch feature that I guess lets you do this that I'd never heard of. Yeah, I can't believe you missed this, yeah, Chance. You so didn't obvious. see the big match audio button. Yeah. You didn't see that big button? No, because the button doesn't exist. But what you can do, if you start a multi-room setup, and I would, I know you mentioned that activating it via Siri would probably make it worse, but I actually find that to work quite well, or at least identically to pressing the buttons in control center. And in many ways, it's fast. Like, if you're trying to play music on the whole house, if you just say, like, if you start playing on one HomePod and just say, play this everywhere pretty good reliability at just putting it on every speaker or you can say play yeah. this in the kitchen in the living room and it will do what you're doing or you can say like move this to the bedroom or whatever so like sometimes if i'm in the kitchen listening to music i'll say move this to the living room and it transfers it because i've finished making my food or whatever and um, that actually works quite well and when it does you know when it when it's not bugging out it's like feels great 
Um, but the thing you're specifically mentioned is if you're playing on multiple speakers at the same time, they play a different audio. I don't know of a way to do this with a voice command, but what you can do if you're on the iPhone um, and you go to the control center tile panel thing, you long press on it, it shows you the list of speakers and they have volume sliders next to them. If you long press on one of those volume sliders and wait like a second or two, it will match the audio of everything else in the group. So if you want to match the audio, so you long obvious. press. It's not, yeah, it's not particularly obvious. This feature was added with 3D Touch. Um, so at the time, you had to force press on, on those sliders yeah. and they would match, um, which is obviously probably even worse. But nowadays, if you know it's there, you can do it. Uh, but it would probably be better if they just said like a match volume button on the screen. Yeah, so I don't know. Just this weekend, the frustration while like, you're trying to do something that's mundane in and of itself, like cleaning, doing chores, stuff like that, then you just want to listen to some music and it doesn't work and you spend 15 minutes troubleshooting. It's just, it's honestly like you mentioned Sonos maybe being better for a multi-room kind of listening experience. I don't want to go down that road just because A, Sonos is expensive and I've already invested so much in these home pods over the past what five four or five years and i think the home pod experience is better if you like if you ignore the multi-room stuff like the fact that it's just in the control center yeah, right there exactly. and you can address it via siri directly and you can do it on the watch and like the home i like I, you know i'm a home pod fan for sure oh yeah i love home the multi-room but... stuff is a weakness yeah and i love one thing i know i would miss with a sonos is the ability to tap your iphone on a home pod and move whatever you're listening to there Mm-hmm. to that specific home pod i use that all the time but and they have that new thing in ios 17 where it just like appears from the dynamic island being like well, i hate in the that. room. do you want to airplay this yeah, yeah i mean i don't I know if that. i like that <laughs> car, but, <laughs> but yeah. at least it's there yeah it's there <laughs> it's there when you don't want it to be there but so yeah i mean debugging wise i feel like your only option is just like turn them off and on again yeah and sometimes it makes something work i don't really know why if you want to get in the weeds, there are some... It, what what routers do you use? Do you use, do you use Mesh? Yes, Eero. Eero. There is a setting on Eero that I can't remember the name of, but it's something like slow network something or, or slow packet. Or there's some setting yeah. that supposedly, mythically, has a relation to the performance of AirPlay 2 on the network. So maybe try turning that on uh, or turning it off. I can't remember exactly what it is. Yeah. Uh, I do think a lot of it comes down to the the way the HomePod negotiates with the Wi-Fi, and sometimes it connects to the mesh. It just accidentally connects connects to a mesh that's not the close one; it's the further away one, and then that increases the the latency and stuff. So, like, there is a, unfortunately some rough edges there, and the Home app doesn't really give you much visibility into sorting that out. Um, so, yeah, if you are having issues, I I mean, you can try turning one on off, and sometimes that does actually help. Other times, it makes no difference whatsoever, <laughs> but uh like the the best experience you can get at the home pods is definitely not what you described but you definitely can get in that quagmire of just it not working properly i think you're right that there, it's probably like one home pod in that setup that's causing all of the problems and i have a theory now that i think about it that it might be the one in the bedroom because it's the oldest and it's had a couple of random issues in the past but i don't i'll have to maybe like just unplug that one and remove it from the the setup and see but I, I was also just thinking the original HomePod has the A8 chip, same as the iPhone 6. Like, when is that going to get dropped from tvOS whatever? Because it's going to get tvOS 17 or HomePod Software 17, whatever they call it. But is this the last one? Because I can't imagine. I don't think the performance of the chip in the HomePod Mini is much different. 
to be honest, because the, the HomePod Mini is the S5 chip, which is an Apple Watch chip, right? Right, yeah. So that's probably quite cool. And I think, I, from I'd have to look this up to be sure, but I think the S5 chip is an A10, but downclocked. That's a that's um, a couple years difference. Yeah, but it's, it's, the CPU speed is a lot slower, I think, because it's obviously it's, meant, yeah, for it's meant for a watch. Yeah, um, so I, I don't think it's like hugely different to what the original HomePod um, has inside it. I feel like the the slowness issues with the original HomePod were more based just like poorly written software or just the network, the the Wi Fi situation. Because you can have an OG HomePod that works perfectly, and then you put it in like slightly bad Wi Fi, and it goes terribly. So, th- th- and again, I don't, I'm not like you know Messiah, but my you know, my, my reading of the tea yeah. leaves of how the HomePods work since I've had it. That's I generally find all the problems come down to the the network connection, not necessarily the router, but the way the HomePods messing up connecting to it or whatever. Um, so I guess the you know eventually the HomePod will probably get dropped, the original one, but I don't think there's a pressing need to unless they start doing like radically different features right. for it. Right, like this year, does the does the OG HomePod get the Wakewordless hey part of Siri. I can't remember. I don't it might do. think so, but I don't know. Yeah. And then of course the new HomePod and the HomePod Mini have the sound recognition thing. Mm. Yeah, which the OG didn't get. Yeah. yeah. So there's a couple things that it's that it's starting to miss. And if it's causing problems in multi-room setups for other people or it's gonna become like a widespread thing, then they probably have to kill it off. But that I mean, they they do a good job of killing themselves off. Yeah, that's true. I surprisingly <laughs> haven't had one die, unless this one. I've had two two literally day one HomePods. They survived somehow. There's one more yeah. thing I've noticed too when you're airplaying to a HomePod from a Mac, from like the music app. Sometimes like it's like one of like the left or the right channel or something like is super soft compared to the rest of the song. I don't know if you've noticed this, but. You'll be listening to something where there's like a background sound or a background vocals that are designed to come out of just one one of the channels, and you can barely faintly hear it on the HomePod. Um, what doing air? Doing what is essentially airplay situation? Right. Yeah. I don't know. I, this is something I again I haven't. A lot of the HomePod stuff is like black magic theory rather than like hard yeah, hard yeah. science. <laughs> but like I swear, when you airplay something to a HomePod, it's quieter than if you just tell it to play the song directly. Probably. I, yeah. I, I, I'm like this. This feels like it's playing at like 80 percent volume. Then you play it on the actual home, but it's like way clearer. I'm like, okay, <laughs> but who knows why? But there, there's definitely some weirdness around there. Um, yeah. I, if you want the wink, the down, the the worst parts of the home experience are probably multi-room and it's working with a Mac because it does work with a Mac, but not great. I would say the 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 integration on iOS is much better. Um, so yeah, sometimes you just hit the hard edges, I guess. And then sometimes the Wi-Fi messes you over yeah. in ways that you can't really diagnose. And I'm an edge case, I'm sure, just with this many HomePods and this mis- amount of like mismatched HomePods. But still, it's it's frustrating. And like you said, it's kind of, I don't know, there's no way to debug it properly. So. Yeah, it's pretty nebulous, unfortunately. I'm just going to go home today and just randomly start unplugging them and figure out which... And it might just work. Yeah, yeah that's <laughs> the stupid thing about it. <laughs> Just unplug them and plug them back in. And it'd be like, wow. The HomePod gods are going to hear this segment and they're going to magically start working. And then I'll have to issue my own apology next week. But here we are for now. <laughs> Happy Hour This Week is sponsored by Fast Growing Trees. Sign up at fastgrowingtrees.com slash happy hour and get 15% off. This summer, you could spend thousands of dollars on planes, hotels, and tourist traps. 
or you could spend way less money on a beautiful garden that will give you years of pleasure. But if gardening normally sounds like a daunting prospect, don't fear, fastgrowingtrees.com is for you. Fast Growing Trees has thousands of easy-to-grow plant, shrub, and tree varieties expertly curated for your unique climate and needs, from maya lemons to evergreens to shade trees and everything in between. And Fast Growing Trees plant experts are on hand to help you choose what's best for you. You can chat, call, and even Zoom with an expert to walk you through your entire garden to help solve problems that you're having with your plants. Their experts have specialized degrees and training to help you troubleshoot from root to leaf. No more waiting in long lines and hauling heavy plants back from the garden centre. With FastGrowingTrees.com, you order online and your plants arrive at your door in just a few days. Now, Zach isn't here, but you've heard him talk about Fast Growing Trees before in previous episodes. He got two plants from Fast Growing Trees, a fiddle leaf fig tree and an areca palm tree. I know he loves them. They really enlivened the entrance to his house. I've seen photos of them on his porch. Months later, they are still growing strong. They look great and they keep getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And with Fast Growing Trees... 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee, you too can be confident that everything you buy will look great, fresh, out of the box. So join almost 2 million happy Fast Growing Trees customers. Go to fastgrowingtrees.com slash happyhournow to get 15% off your entire order. That's 15% off at fastgrowingtrees.com slash happyhour. Thanks to Fast Growing Trees for sponsoring the show. So there was a apparent controversy in iOS 17 about the location of the end call button, which honestly I didn't even notice until a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, I do so few calls yeah, yeah, on my exactly. phone these days. I think I did notice it like once on beta one, but I just kind of blended into the background because there's like six buttons there and one of them's red. It's like, okay, that's yeah, the end that's call it. button. <laughs> yeah, so in iOS 16, it was there were the six buttons along the top row for like mute, keypad, all that, all that stuff. Then the red end call button was at the bottom, separated off by itself. Then iOS 17, they moved all of those buttons down and put the end call button on the bottom right, like integrated into the row of other buttons. And like two weeks ago, last last week or the week before, there was a story that got picked up by the Associated Press about backlash towards this change. Then that Associated Press story got like syndicated to a bunch of like local news channels here in the United States and it went super viral on like Facebook with a bunch of angry people and yeah I, I saw it on like CNBC and stuff like once the Associated Press covers it it goes into like that like right news exactly wire bucket that so many publications cover because they just kind of have to do it by default like I'm sure my local news station has not covered hardly anything about iOS 17 but then this became a controversy and it was like the top their top post on Facebook last week but Anyway, all of this is to say iOS 17 beta 6 came out this week and it changes where the end call button is located. So it's still at the... It's gone from the bottom right to the middle again? Yeah, and it's still in between the other buttons, but at least I guess your muscle memory will kind of be more familiar, but you'll still have to jump around those other buttons and make sure you hit right in the middle so you you avoid like adding somebody to the call or muting or whatever. If the buttons were all the same color, i.e. that desaturated gray and white monochrome look, it, this would be a much bigger problem if they move the buttons around. But it is so hard to not press the end call yeah. button because it's, it's bright, bright red. red. Like, yeah, like they've moved other UI stuff around before and I've definitely criticized it in previous years. So like I'm not like impervious to critiquing like beta changes like that. But I feel like on this case, I am not in the crowd of complaints because 
it's really hard to muck it up. And it is even more sensible now in beta 6 when it's back in the center. Yeah. Um, but even when it was on the right, I guess if you were left-handed, you were a bit of a disadvantage, for instance, and yeah. putting it back in the middle kind of neutralizes that. But there was no way that normal people were going to get confused by that because, like, it's just a massive red button. It's really hard <laughs> to, ma- to muck up. Yeah. The most common way, too, that I'll end a call is with the dynamic island. So I'll start the call mm. and then go to, like, scroll around on my phone while I'm on the phone and... When it's done, I either just wait for the other person to hang up or I long press on the dynamic island and hit the end call button there. So, And quite a lot of normal people I've seen actually use the physical button to hang up. Yeah. You can like double click mm-hmm. it or whatever and it hangs up. I never do that, but apparently it's quite a common like, you know, regular person thing to do is to mute and silence with that side button when you're on the call. I guess it just hails back to old physical phones where they had like a physical, you know, hang up button. This is a bit of a tangent, but you mentioned the Dynamic Island. Yeah. Have you noticed on the iOS 17 betas, like, it's a bit janky, <laughs> the animations for the Dynamic Island? Have you seen the that? The animations are bad, and, too, they keep reintroducing the bug where if you have two things... The toolbar layout y- thing. Yeah, yeah. and it, me- it, like, overlaps with your... your Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi or cellular signal bars. It seems It seems buggy. I don't know if I'd say it's more buggy than it was in iOS 16, but it is for you. The animation's definitely way worse. Like, the you know if you've got, like, music playing and you can like, long press and you get that little, you know, now playing, yeah. mm-hmm. expanded tile, expanded palette. Uh, on iOS 16, that animation was, like, perfect. So you'd have, like, the tiny little, um, you know, minimized island with the with the um, waveform and the album on the left. Mm-hmm. You long pressed, it would, like, you know, scale up perfectly, full screen or not full screen but you know full size and then you'd like tap or whatever and it would zoom back down to small again i don't know what they did in i17 but like you long press it like drops frames and then it like zooms to like the content of the island is like fully there before the actual like black borders fully surrounded it on the expanding and then when you collapse it like it's like they've like changed the physics so like it goes like super wobbly but it goes so wobbly it like reveals the physical cutouts like uh, around you know like yeah, so yeah. You, it breaks the illusion of the of it being just like a software thing because it like sh- it like it, it minimized the software blackness minimizes smaller than the physical bezel cutout so you like see the lines cross over and it looks really bad uh it was super bad on beta 5 on beta 6 it's slightly better but it's still not perfect it's like on iOS 16 they like nailed the smoothness of that so i hope that comes back by the time this thing is public because uh, it feels pretty nice and this year with the iPhone 15 every single model's getting a dynamic island so It'd be unfortunate if the animations are balked. But the good news is, I mean, it's a good trade-off because in iOS 17, they added so many new features to the Dynamic Island. that. It... <laughs> but in in something related to what you just said is in Beta 5, maybe Beta 4 too, there was a bug where ProMotion wouldn't work for some animations. Like it would yeah. revert to 60 hertz. So I'm wondering if that might be part of what was affecting the Dynamic Island. But I, I haven't noticed that. Do you have Pro or Pro Max? Pro Max, and I'm, I think that maybe that's maybe a, that's different. Yeah, because yeah, I tweeted about the um, the thing where it like collapses and then overlaps the actual physical borders, and I got a fair few people saying, "Yeah, they see that too." Uh, but at least I'm on the 14 Pro, not the Pro Max. I don't know if that makes a difference. I also just wondered randomly if maybe like the the, the metrics of the Dynamic Island on the 15 is like a couple of pixels different oh, or whatever, yeah, so yeah. it's just glitching out at the moment on this current gen. If they're like redesigning it to work, that was just a complete hype theory that i haven't actually tested that with the schematics or whatever that have come out we'll find out in yeah <laughs> three weeks then the long-running saga of the new interface for imessage applications in ios 17 it's got another change in beta 6 
So now you can long yeah, press. Kind of weird. Yeah, you can long press on the plus button, and it what does it do? It automatically brings up the photo picker. Yeah, so the overlay of the different options doesn't show if you long press. It just drops down the keyboard and the photos picker's there. Kind of weird. Oh, I just tried. Because it's so not particularly fast at doing it. Yeah. But it, it does do it. And it doesn't give you like any feedback that it actually worked. So like I long press on that, that plus button. Then when I remove my finger, the photos picker comes up. That's weird. I don't know about that. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty random. I guess it's to address the concern that it takes two taps to get to the Photos app icon now in iMessage, but this kind of reminds me of that match volume setting for HomePods. It's just so discoverable that everybody will find it. Yeah, I mean, for me, photos are such a... Like, when you're using messages, you're typing or you're attaching a photo, I wish they just put a photos button back on the main yeah. top level. Yep. Just have photos and then, then a plus, you know? Everything else can go under the plus, but... Picking a photo is like so common I, for me, at least. So it would be, yeah, it would be. I prefer it if they go back to that. I don't think it's terrible in the current state, but I think nobody will use the long pressure yeah. shortcut because it's not really a shortcut. It's more like a long cut. It's quicker just open the panel and then tap it. Like I think that UI on that panel now they've fixed the icons and stuff is actually quite nice, and I think it will be received pretty well by regular people and they're not going to be confused or weirded out. It's I think it's actually more understandable mm. than the iMessage app draw thing they had before. Um, I th- but if you want to go back back five releases then there was just a photos button on the main toolbar and that was i think the ideal solution so I, I, maybe we'll eventually circle back to that we've just taken a bit of a long way around see i feel like making it harder to find the photos app and iMessage is gonna get more pushback than the location of the end call button would have if they hadn't changed it that's just such a common like you said a common use case but we'll see i'll be interested to see what regular people think because I'm still adjusting to it, and I don't love it, but it's it's gotten better over the betas. It's like the one thing that each beta has iterated on in response, I guess, to some of the, the early feedback about how, just how different the interface was in beta 1. It's certainly a thing that's changed the most, oh, yeah. I guess. Which is not saying much, mm-hmm. but it's changed. Yeah. <laughs> and it's a relatively conservative year. And something else in iOS 17 beta 6 that I didn't realize until i was looking at the show notes this morning so the mute switch no longer gives you that vibration haptic feedback is that is that right it's true on my device and i saw other people mention it too if you flick the mute switch on the side there's no vibration so is this a hint no vibration on ring a hint at the action button maybe maybe it's like an incidental uh bug because of it or something where like they were preparing the code for the action button and they just like forgotten the haptic i i can't imagine that even if you have an action button that you wouldn't want haptic feedback to go along with right though, exactly you know like obviously the haptic the the action button will be able to do more than just mute because well, otherwise they wouldn't change it from a switch so like you'll be able to choose just like you can on the apple watch like what feature you want but if you set it to toggle ring ring or mute or silent i feel like it should just do the same haptic it always did uh so this seems more like a bug to me but I guess we'll find out soon. So, Mayo, I want you to go on your iPhone to the settings app and tell me what your battery maximum capacity is. Ooh, let's have a look here. I will do the same. This is a very timely thing. This is what everyone's been tweeting yeah. for last week. It's just screenshots of this percentage. So, when this kind of furore broke out, my setting screen said 94%. 
right? So that was about a week and a half ago. Today, it says 92%. So it's dropped 2% in a week and a half, according to this. So last week, I was at 92%, and I'm still at 92%. But yeah, like you said, this has been going around quite a bit over the past few weeks, and people... The anecdotal data is that this the battery health on iPhone 14 Pro in particular is degrading faster than on the iPhone 13 Pro. So the primary factor here is the maximum capacity, which Apple says is like the measure of your iPhone's battery capacity relative to when it was brand new. The biggest drops I've seen from people are from like 100% down to like 86, 85%. But that seems to be, those examples seem to be like the edge cases. And I think most people are worst case scenario right around right around where we are at like 90%, 92%. And a lot of people are still at 96, 97, even 100%. But there's some concern, I guess, just at how different these numbers are and at the rate at which maximum capacity is declining this year compared to past years. But Mayo, you've pointed out kind of how this compares to what Apple says about charge cycles for an iPhone's life cycle. Yeah, so this has been true for as long as I can remember. Apple on its website on the battery specs, it rates iPhone batteries for 500 cycles, which means full charge cycles from zero to 100. Um, And if you're charging, you know, once per day, then roughly you're getting 500 days of battery. But it's more complicated than that because, like, obviously some days you aren't charging from 0 to 100. You're right. charging from, like, 20 to 100. And sometimes you're on 18, you're talking about 20. So, you know, roughly I put 500 cycles at about two years. Um, and then if you look on Macs, they say Mac batteries last for 1,000 cycles, which is about four years. And obviously these numbers are very whiffy and waffy and you can analyze them and it depends on your individual circumstance and how you use the phone, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that roughly plays out, like... The, the battery is about two years before it gets to that 80% mark. And this lines up with AppleCare's policy too, because AppleCare will replace your battery for a degraded battery only if it's below 80% after two years. Or within, sorry, before two years is up. Because if it's after two years, they count that as within normal use. So I've always seen the iPhone batteries about a two-year lifespan before they hit 80%. And when they hit 80%, your battery is pretty degraded and you should probably get it replaced. Um, this has been true forever and ever since they had that massive scandal uh, with ios 11 where they you know they started implementing the policy where the battery degradation would correspond to cpu throttling for very various reasons i don't really want to get into but (laughs) ever since that happened one of the outcomes of that was they now show you the percentage on your setting screen before that you'd have to like plug into a mac and then like download this like app and it would like tell you and you can still do it today with like coconut battery and it tells you It'll tell you like your cycle count, yeah. like, whereas the iPhone settings app only shows you the percentage, but whatever. So if you take 500 cycles, it'll be approximately two years. The iPhone 14 Pro is almost one year old, right? Presume you got your launch. And I think everyone on Twitter talking about this is like the tech heads who bought your launch, including me. And so you should probably expect about 10% degradation around now, slightly less because it's not quite a whole year. And sure enough, we just said 92% battery, right? Which is about directly in line with that. So... On that basis, seems like it's in line with Apple's stated specifications. That doesn't rule out the chance that maybe the something has changed so that in previous years, Apple was under-promising and over-delivering, right? So people in real life are like, well, my battery feels better, worse than it used to. But the Apple reported stat is still the same. But in reality, people were exceeding the stat beforehand. That's a possibility. I'm not saying that's true. Because I think 
this is the same as every other year, mm-hmm. with maybe a slight qualification that the iPhone 14 Pro's battery life is generally worse than previous generations. So it means people have charged it slightly more often, which means they've used slightly more cycles than they would have normally or they would have compared to their previous phone. So I don't think this is a real issue, but you can't really know for sure unless you do like a scientific study or survey of like thousands of phones because it's right. so easy to fall to anecdotal evidence here where like one person says they're on 100 one person says they're on 92 or one person says well this is definitely draining faster than my previous phone you know what i mean like it's mm-hmm. it's so easy to like look at that percentage and like psychoanalyze it without any like statistical analysis to it that it's so easy to make a drama out of nothing without doing like hard science about it because the other problem is that battery percentage that maximum capacity percentage, it's not scientifically accurate, you know? Right, like, battery yeah. chemistry is incredibly variable. And I think what I anecdotally observed is on previous phones, the capacity reported would definitely report in a non-linear fashion. So, like, it would stay at 100 for a while and then jump to 95 and then stay around 95 for a while and then jump to below 90 or whatever, like, out of sync with a, you know, one. so rather than going, like, 1% a month, it would be, like, zero percent degradation for three months then go half percent do you know what i mean Mm -hmm. like whereas i feel like on the 14 pro it seems more linear but again that might just be me making up because i've seen people tweet their stats from the iphone 13 pro's battery capacity from basically this time a year ago and there it's also in the 92 93 94 percent range so is there actually a scandal here is there actually anything different i'm i'm not convinced did you check your battery cycle count with that coconut battery app I didn't I didn't bother to be honest. So mine but. said that it was at 347 cycles and my battery health maximum capacity is at 92%. So that would mean that my battery is actually outperforming Apple's estimates, right? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I get the pushback on this and I it's one of those things that like gains a whole bunch of traction on Twitter and elsewhere. That'll... It's easily viral. Exactly. Right? Like it's a great, it's a great headline. It's a great tweet. Everybody great on Twitter thing, is yeah. sharing the screenshots to get their engagement, to get their checks from, from Elon Musk for the creator payout or whatever. But yeah, and if and if you're if the if the chemicals inside your particular battery are slightly bad or just slightly misreported the number, it's like, well, I'm getting outraged. <laughs> you know what I mean? But then it then like because the, the problem is like, let's say you're 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 listening now and you check and you only have like eighty nine percent battery capacity. There's nothing to say in two months' time that yours stays at 89 and ours has dropped to 89. Like, right. it's, yeah. it's so hard to like nail it down to because it's not a li- you know, it doesn't work linearly most of the time. And so it's hard to really draw patterns without like doing hard scientific analysis, which is just impossible for people to do anecdotally individually. I think what you said too about iPhone 14 Pro battery life just being worse this year than in previous years is a key factor because it's kind of like a double edged sword. Like, as your battery ages, the maximum capacity goes down, your battery life gets even worse the more you charge your iPhone, which then makes the battery age even faster, if that makes sense. It's mm-hmm. like once that decline, so you start off with iPhone 14 Pro with worse battery life than iPhone 13 Pro. It degrades maybe at a slightly quicker rate than before, and then it just snowballs and snowballs. So after one year, you might go from 100 to 90%, but then you're going to go from 90 to 80% a lot quicker, which then means that a lot of people will be needing battery replacements before Apple's two-year estimate. There's things like charging speeds and all of that that you kind of touched on, and that's just something that I don't think iPhone users in general need to worry about. I think for the vast majority of people, 
they'll probably be fine if they just charge their iPhone when they need to charge it. And they don't need to worry about how fast their each different charging method they use is and how that affects battery health. Yeah, the, the, the Apple added that maximum percentage because they were kind of forced to, to be transparent in the face of the lawsuits and everything else. But it probably doesn't need to be there. Like, people should probably, like, the amount of F mental hoops you have to jump through to, like, analyze that percentage and, like, adjust your use of the phone to correspond to it, it's like, it's not worth it. Like, it's just not worth it. Just, I try and not look at the percentage, to be yeah. honest, and just live my life. Because, I, I, you know, every iPhone before they started reporting that percentage, I did it. I never knew the percentage and then the maximum capacity and I just use the phone and I'm not like a person upgrades every year right like obviously if you know if you're in that privilege you really don't have to care because you'll just be changing your phone next month so it doesn't matter right but I, I keep my phones for multiple years I have never tried to like follow a charging routine to maximize percentage health or whatever no and I've never had to replace a battery in the phone and if it got like if it got super bad right let's say I keep this this iPhone 14 Pro for four years and in the third and a half, three and a half years in the battery capacity is so degraded that it is bad I guess I'll just pay the eighty pounds or whatever and get the battery changed. You know, like if there is a real problem here, Apple will know. They collect all the telemetry, and hopefully they'll do something about it. If third-party analysis from iFixit or somebody else finds out that and can prove this for sure, then it will become an actual story. I think it's like actually worth the the paper it's written on, and then Apple right. probably have to respond and talk about it. I think in most. Like in the 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 most likely situation here is that there's nothing different to last year. It's just like something that's blown up on social media, you know, kind of empowered by itself because you get a couple of people who are on the eighty nine percent boundary and then it like flares up. You know, I think I think in general Apple's not going to screw you on the battery thing only four years after they had that other situation because right. it's so tender, so so much tender ground for lawsuits and consumer protection and all sorts of stuff even though i think some of the resolutions to that last scandal were not really fair in apple's favor like they did like it was a complicated situation they mishandled it as well but stuff happened but i mean even this week i saw a headline that's like apple finally settles for 500 million or whatever on on that lawsuit so like you know these things have a lot of ramifications and people like you know you can jokingly see apple as like this like big bad company that's always trying to weasel every last dollar out of you and like you know the you know twirling its mustache or whatever of being super super clever about that stuff at the end of the day they make money when people are happy with their products so like there is always that incentive pushing in the other direction so probably the battery is exactly the same as it's always been and maybe the 14 pro is just slightly worse so you have slightly increased degradation from that and of course one of the conspiracy theories around this whole battery health situation is that it, this story is blowing up right around the time of the iphone 15 pro so everybody's like, this is planned obsolescence. Apple is destroying my iPhone's battery life one month before they want me to upgrade. Like, this is typical Apple. Like, I, I do want to clarify, because I'm, I'm not trying to, like, shoot down any criticism right. of anything yeah. they do, because that's, that's that's not right, right? But you you can't have, you know, a smattering of isolated people reporting percentages and try and make a case out of that. Like, there has to be a more concrete, scientifically, statistically relevant study and nothing like that has been done so it's hard to like if if every little like pipe dream of a complaint got that much attention you could have like a scandal every single day that isn't actually based on reality at all like when there are actual problems that come up happy to talk about and happy to you know put apple to the fire over it but like this situation it's just too easy for people to tweet screenshots and like say aha i found (laughs) out something mischievous but like 
so far, there hasn't been any real evidence behind it, I don't think. This reminds me of when, what was it, the 2016 MacBook Pro came out and people were complaining about battery life. And Apple's like, quote unquote, solution or one of their solutions was just to remove the battery percentage. It's like, no, <laughs> iOS 7. It was the time remaining, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, time remaining, time yeah. remaining. Yeah. iOS 17.1 is going to just remove the maximum capacity altogether. So <laughs> Tim Cook wins in Although, the end. I think they might be like legally binding <laughs> yeah. to keeping that screen in, but yeah, we'll see, we'll see. Happy Hour This Week is also brought to you by Backblaze. The proposition for Backblaze is simple. Everybody needs to back up their stuff. And Backblaze does exactly that. It's unlimited computer backup for Macs, PCs, and businesses through the cloud. Just $7 a month. Get a free trial now at backblaze.com slash happy hour. Backup documents, music, photos, videos, projects, homework, everything that's on your Mac. And then if disaster strikes, you can restore it all with Backblaze. And it's not just about data recovery. All of your backed up data is also easily viewable from anywhere in the world using Backblaze's web app. And they have iOS and Android apps too. So as a cloud service, Backblaze is super convenient. Uh, But in the case when you do need to get everything back, you might not want to rely on your ISP's download speeds. So Backblaze has a solution in mind for that too. They've thought of everything. So what you can do is you can buy a hard drive restore from them. They ship a drive to you filled with your data so you can get your terabytes of data copied off physically without having to rely on the internet. And then you simply send the hard drive back to them within 30 days for a full refund. What a great service. Backblaze is easy and affordable data storage that you can trust. Start your free, fully featured free trial now at backblaze.com slash happy hour. No credit card required. And if you own a business, you can click on the business backup section on that page to start backing up your business data as well. Don't be the person that forgets to back up your important files. Back up your entire Mac now with Backblaze. Once again, go to backblaze.com slash happy hour for a fully featured 15-day free trial backblaze.com slash happy hour use that url so they know where you came from and continue to support the show thanks to backblaze for sponsoring happy hour so apple watch series x series 10 apple watch x something german says mark german says in his power on newsletters in the works for 2024 or 2025 so this would be basically the biggest redesign to the apple watch form factor since 2015 basically and he says it'll be thinner and potentially have a new magnetic system for how bands connect to the apple watch yeah being the biggest redesign ever seen on the apple watch is not particularly a high bar to meet because they've only redesigned it once really with the 2018 one where they um you know went from a square um screen to a rounded corner screen they pushed it more to the edges and they made it more rounder a more rounder shaped body rather than like rectangular but since then, it's basically remained the same design. Obviously, in the intervening years, the screen, the bezels got even smaller and they've pushed it even more. But generally, I think you can say, yeah, the original Apple Watch design, the 2018 Apple Watch Series 4, and that's kind of basically been it with minor tweaks since then. So doing the biggest redesign ever, you don't have to do much to beat those two. And it's right? not even like clear what original. exactly that quote-unquote biggest redesign would be. German basically just says thinner and by changing how the bands connect they'll have more internal space to like add a bigger battery or add more sensors or whatever but in terms of a physical design this doesn't sound like it's going to be apple turning the apple watch into a circular you know google pixel watch style design yeah it still sounds like a refinement in in the square rectangle shape there's not too much more you could do really right like 
the watch is the watch. So in the same way that the iPhone's the iPhone, right? And the Apple Watch Series 4, the Apple Watch Series 3, the Apple Watch Series 4 was kind of the equivalent of the iPhone 7 to the iPhone 10, right? Right, yeah. And since the iPhone 10, you know, the design of the iPhone evolves, but it's it's the iPhone 10 chemistry, right? Like, yeah. That's the DNA. Um, and so if you look at the Apple Watch, we've already done the bezel thing with the Series 4. I guess the biggest redesign ever would be like making it less round on the corners if you make it flatter. Like, I always think it would be cool if they could do like an Apple Watch where the thin the thickness of the actual chassis is like the same as the thickness of the band so like it's just like one continuous loop then it kind of diverges away from being a watch and it i don't think it's really practical because you need space of battery and sensors and everything but that would look cool and that would more bring it back around to like the the design of like fitness bands you know like the old fitbit bands and stuff yeah where it's just like one one like loop around your wrist um but i think practically you know the biggest redesign ever probably means like they're gonna make it thinner they might change the back design so it doesn't like stick out as much and maybe it just looks less slightly like a raised pebble and more you know maybe they give it a bit of a curvature you know to follow your wrist round or something um it doesn't have to be crazy for it to classify as the biggest redesign ever changing the bands is a big deal that's a huge deal because obviously yeah because they they've never promised band compatibility but by proxy they kind of have because you know for nine generations of apple watch they haven't changed how the bands connect which means some people have bought up massive collections of bands they swap between obviously apple's been willing to sell them so there's people out there with you know dozens of watch bands and now maybe facing a hard break where they're going to change to a different design and it's been eight years so it's not unreasonable i guess but it's interesting because we've kind of seen apple go out of their way to maintain band support like when they went from 38 and 42 millimeters to what 40 and 44 millimeters they could have used that as an easy opportunity to say throw out all your old bands like this new design requires you to buy new bands but they haven't they haven't done that so eight years on i'm not surprised that they're finally thinking about doing that but i wonder what the benefit of this new magnetic band system will be and maybe like you said it can help kind of smooth the transition from band to watch but the the side effect of supporting bands the same band mechanism same band system for eight years is people have some people have a dozen plus bands that they're going to have to now go out and rebuy and gradually build up their collection again do you do you think that's the common case though this is why i don't think it's that big of a deal i think most people don't have loads of bands i think you're probably right and i think most people also like buy eight dollar bands on amazon a hundred percent, which is yeah. a lot different of a scenario than paying, having a collection of a dozen plus fifty to one hundred and fifty dollars bands from Apple. So that's a good and point. some, and they, the bands do wear out over time, right? Like, you know, you wear them eventually; they start like getting scuffed and mucky, and the plastic starts tearing away, or the color, the, they discolor and whatever. Like, they do have a shelf life; they're not like things yeah. that can literally last forever. Um, they last, you know, if you treat them all right, they last many years, but I don't think they last literally forever. But I think. Most people that buy an Apple Watch maybe get the Apple Watch with whatever band it comes with, then maybe buy like one extra band when they want to like switch it out or whatever. Like the people with like the the collectors with you know twelve different watch bands are, I think, the vast vast minority. And the people that honestly could probably afford to just <laughs> yeah, buy them again true. if they really have to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. like Apple's never said we're going to make sure the bands stay the same. They just kind of conveniently has happened by proxy. And for the first couple of years, people are like, oh, the band's going to change. Oh, and they didn't. All right, whatever. But I, it's, never lost my, it's never left my mind. It's always been in the back of my head. Like, no, yeah. 
why buy a massive collection of watch bands if one year Apple changes the design? Because I just see watch bands like iPhone cases, you know, and Apple <laughs> happily breaks compatibility yeah. with the iPhone case with reckless abandon. And, you know, some people moan about it, but, you know, the expectation's set and now people are just used to it, right? The new iPhone comes out. Nowadays, if the, if the cases don't fit the old one, it's like, well, of course they don't fit the old one. You've got to buy a new case, do you know? So, like... I don't think it's the worst thing in the world. And I don't think Apple... It's not enough of a motivation to mean that Apple shouldn't do it. And I think it's kind of interesting or kind of reassuring in a way that they are going for something so dramatic that they are reconsidering like the core fundamentals of the entire watch design. And the end result might not be that different, but it's going to be different enough, I think, to make it look different, you know, make it unique. And if you do look at the, the way the watch band connects... There's quite a fair amount of percentage of the space that is taken up. So I can get that argument, you know, like it has to cut into the edges of the watch. Inside the watch itself, there has to be a little clasp that the thing can slick in and out Mm. of. Like if you add up the top connector and the bottom connector, that's like what, 10% of the overall volume of the the watch is just that. So, you know, when you're looking at a watch that's two inches across, if you can cut 10% off of it, you could maybe add more battery, you can make it thinner, like... That's what I'd hope probably from a more dramatic redesign of the Apple Watch is a way to prioritize more battery life. Because I think the biggest selling point of the Apple Watch Ultra is that it can last like three days. And that's enabled by the fact that it's huge, right? But if they could take the Apple Watch normal size and give it three days of battery life, that'd be a huge sell um, and easily make up for any annoyances about bands changing around, you know? I think by and large, like this mechanism for the band connectivity that they've been using is pretty good. But the whole like three, you know, like the three little pins inside there that you align when you slide mm-hmm. it in from the side. I've seen a lot of people and like my wife has had this happen a few times where like a s- amount of like gunk, for lack of a better term, like just debris and random, random things end up inside that little connector where the ba- she had a band get stuck like she literally couldn't get it undone. And then once oh, she okay, got yeah, it yeah. undone, like the pins were so messed up that when she slid it in, tried to slide in a new band, they just wouldn't like click into place. So there's room for improvement there. And I think from a design and magnets are cool. Yeah. Magnets are cool. And that's like, that's what I was going to say. Like from a design standpoint, how the band connects now and kind of creates that little gap, you know, in between the, the, the part that you slide in and the body of the watch itself, that, kind of ruins the seamless appearance of the watch so maybe a magnetic yep. system would visually and practically work a little better and who knows maybe in the long run of the future they can then use like the pins of the magnets to also transfer some data if they want to make the band like have a little sensor in it itself like you can see why they they, they want to reconsider everything you know um and I saw a couple of people were when like we posted about this or whatever, there was some pushback that magnets aren't as stable when you're like doing activities or whatever. Like I imagine when it says magnetic attachment that there'll be some locking mechanism, kind of like what the Apple Vision Pro headset has for the battery, where uh, yeah. it's a magnetic attachment but it like locks into place with a little like twist or something. I imagine there's something like that involved here. And to be fair, German doesn't even like hundred percent say that they're going to go ahead with it they've just been quote testing it so like it's unclear if they're actually ready to do it or not this time but i think it's look it's been eight years i think it's fair enough that they're trying to reconsider every single design decision they made with a watch and do something wholly new and i think if you stay tied to band compatibility you're ultimately just restricting yourself and what what you can achieve um because if they can make a really thin watch or a substantially thinner watch i think that'd be really cool one thing german also he doesn't really say this is coming with the 
Apple Watch 10, but it would make sense is the support for monitoring your blood pressure, which I think we talked about this a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. That's kind of believed to be the next new health monitoring feature for the Apple Watch. And this prompted me to look up how Samsung's blood pressure monitoring works for their like what the Galaxy Watch or whatever they're called. And the system that Samsung has is, I don't know, it doesn't sound too appealing. So basically, you first have to measure your blood pressure with a traditional blood pressure cuff to calibrate it, which that that seems fine. But then every four weeks, you have to recalibrate the watch again, which that's like, that doesn't align with what the other Apple Watch Guardian Angel health sensor features work, you know? Like that's... That doesn't seem like whatever solution Apple's going to implement. It doesn't seem very very elegant where you have to basically have a, have a second device that you could just use to measure your blood pressure every now and again anyway. And for <laughs> just for better just or for to worse. to recalibrate the watch that you're wearing. Yeah. I don't think most people are taking their blood pressure every four weeks to begin with. So this is like an added added responsibility. It's like a chore at that yeah, point. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what I imagine the Apple solution will be in the end is it will be like what they did for the temperature sensor where it measures difference from baseline. Yeah. So it doesn't necessarily give you absolute readings, but it can measure like variance, but it won't require calibration with external hardware. They'll just figure it out somehow eventually. Then German also says that there are some talks inside Apple about moving the Apple Watch away from a yearly upgrade cycle. So we've seen new Apple Watches every year since 2015. And supposedly this is something they're considering changing, so maybe moving to an every other year upgrade cycle. I doubt this. I think they're going to keep churning out new watches every year, even if the differences are very, very minor and maybe only new colors or another another material. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, there's a difference between new colors and material versus like Apple Watch Series 7, 8, 9. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah. That's... I, if, if there's just a color refresh, I wouldn't count. I would count that as moving away from yearly upgrade cycle like well you would but what apple marketing you know that's the thing well the way okay the way i interpret what Goman's reported yeah is not they'll just refresh the colors and count and you, do you know what i mean yeah. like i think i think what he's saying here is they're not going to do a seven eight nine iteration each year so like the watch that you buy will be physically different will no longer be physically different every single year i can see them doing that to be honest because like the changes are getting smaller and smaller and smaller Apple Watch Series 9 is coming out next month and we think it has like a spec bump CPU and nothing else, which would be fine. And, you know, the, the Macs have spec bump years or whatever, but then you look three years previous and the watch is basically the same with minor changes. Like, I think there's definitely room for Apple to move to like an 18-month cycle for the watch or maybe just skip one year one time or whatever. Like, it's not... The iPhone is the cash cow. They, there's no way they can not ship an iPhone every year even if they have nothing to do, right? Like, yeah. they just have to because it makes them billions and billions and billions. The other products can be on a more loose cycle. Um, it's not tied to the financial, you know, the financial stability of the company. So the Macs are on like eighteen month cycles or year cycle sometimes, but then generally eighteen months. The iPads on an eighteen month cycle sometimes even longer. I feel like the watch could go there too. Like the updates that they've done the last few years probably don't really justify year over year changes. They just kind of do it, I think, because like people buy an iPhone and they get a watch at the same time. You know. A long time, forever is a long time, right? Like, yeah. And it doesn't sound like, because, you know, literally we were just talking about a German saying that in either 2024 or 2025, they're going to do the Apple Watch 10, right? Which is going to be a massive change. So, obviously, if they're talking about this idea now, it's for a roadmap a few years down the road. 
Um, at which point, maybe there's just a mature... Like, the watch is maturing. So, at some point, maybe it doesn't make sense to make a new one every single year. It's not worth the engineering resources for the incremental sales bump or whatever. I can see it happen. You know, maybe the Apple Watch 12 is around for two years and then along comes the Apple Watch 13 or something. And there could be a cycle too where there's not a new like Apple Watch Series 9, 10, and 11, whatever every year, but one year it's the Apple Watch Series 9 that's new and then the next year there's a radically different Ultra, then you back to the mm. standard series, then you maybe have a new SE. There's ways to keep iterating the Apple Watch lineup and changing it over time without introducing a new quote-unquote flagship model yeah no 100 percent. finally happy hour this week is brought to you by ladder if you're anything like me you have a certain tendency to put things off until the very last minute dentists opticians appointments filing taxes that that kind of stuff and it's usually fine but you shouldn't mess around and wait when it comes to life insurance get term coverage life insurance through ladder today go to ladderlife.com slash happy hour to see if you're instantly approved I've started needing glasses recently and that was kind of a moment where it hit me that, oh yeah, I'm I'm getting older (laughs) and stuff like life insurance somehow feels immediately more relevant. Life insurance gives you peace of mind to know that your family will be taken care of if the worst happens. Ladder is a 100% digital service when you apply for $3 million in coverage or less. That means no doctors, no needles and no paperwork. It's all done online. You just need a phone or laptop to apply. You fill out Ladder's application form and their smart algorithms will work in real time and tell you instantly if you're approved. Ladder has no hidden fees and you can cancel at any time. Get a full refund if you cancel within the first 30 days. And Ladder's policies are issued by insurers with long proven histories of paying claims. Ladder's customers rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot. So if you've been thinking about getting life insurance, Ladder is the place to do it. If you aren't sure but you just want some more information, go on Ladder's website, fill out their online calculator and you can see the cost and terms of the plan with no commitment. And as the cost of life insurance goes up as you age, now is the time to act and get it done. So go to ladderlife.com slash happy hour today to see if you're instantly approved. That's L-A-D-D-E-R-L-I-F-E dot com slash happy hour. One more time, ladderlife.com slash happy hour. Thanks to Ladder for sponsoring the show. All right, so I have another question for you. When was the last time you used the iTunes movie trailers, either website or app on your iPhone? Or- Oof, a long time ago. <laughs> <laughs> and that, I think, is lines up with the story this week that... The iTunes Movie Trailers app appears to be riding off into the sunset. Basically, Apple added a new banner to the apps and to the movie's trailer website saying that the Apple TV app is the new home of iTunes Movie Trailers. And sure enough, they've started adding a new trailers, a trailers section to the TV app that's, I think, keeping in line with the theme of this week, highly discoverable. And surely everybody (laughs) will find it and they'll love it. Or maybe you just not. open the TV app, click on store, and then scroll for like five pages, and then you might find the one little tile that'll take you to the trailers. And then, t- and then click on that tile, and you'll see basically just a list of options with no, what, no filters, no real sorting options, just a random. Yeah, I think people used the like the 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 the, the dedicated fan base of the iTunes trailer app, and I'm sure there were a couple million of them. <laughs> dedicated. Fan yeah, base. yeah, I'm sure there are you know a few million people who did use it, whatever. Because back in the back, you know, back in the classic days, like 15 years ago, 20 years ago, it was like the place to go to for movie trailers. But in the intervening years, 
this thing called YouTube uh, came, ah, to, came yeah. to existence. Heard of that. So uh, I feel like YouTube has uh, kind of sucked up everybody's lunch and compounded on that. Nowadays, people don't like watch trailers of like that the most of the time when you're watching the when you're in the place where you're looking to something to watch it has the trailer right then and there right like itunes trailers comes back from the days when stuff would be in like movie theaters for a long time before it turned up on vod or whatever and now people are just on a streaming service you can click play the trailer right directly in context you don't have to go to a different app or anything um and then youtube kind of subsumed everything else but for the people that did like using the itunes trailers up, up to this time it did have some advantage of something like YouTube because it's just trailers and then it also had like trailer-specific options like sort by release date, sort by language, sort by rating, you know, sort by all, sort by date, sort by date of the film, sort by date of when the trailer came out. Like it was in high quality and, you know, it was easy to use and it looked nice and it was simple and plain and no dedicated. Ads. It was like a dedicated app, like a big, no ads, a big, a big, I think a big draw of it was that it's just a dedicated place just for trailers and nothing else. Yeah. So when you squash it into one little section of the TV app, you kind of lose a lot of those advantages. The problem, like, I'm surprised. The TV app is bad in all yeah. sorts. The TV app is bad, right? The TV app is bad at stuff that Apple actually cares about, right? Let alone stuff that they don't care about, like trailers. So, like, the iTunes trailers <laughs> app. So, the TV app is just bad in all sorts of ways. It's bad at TV Plus. It's bad at surfacing MLS season bars. It's bad at organizing anything else because you end up, like, the, the default experience of the TV app is people click on it, they click on something and they go, oh, this looks interesting, and then it just says you have to buy it or rent it, and then they close the app and they never touch it again. So, like, the TV app is bad, and as I've talked about in this show many times before. So just chucking the iTunes trailers in there too doesn't make it good. <laughs> you know, in fact, it probably makes it worse because there's a lot of layer of craft of stuff that if you are interested in that particular stuff, it's something that you now have to swipe over, and if you don't care about anything else in the TV app but you just wanted trailers, there's loads of stuff that you have to dig through. At the same time, I can't really blame them for discontinuing no, was, the iTunes trailers experience. Right? I'm surprised like, it's made it this long. Yeah, exactly. I think somebody kind of... Because if you go on the iTunes trailers website, it looks like the Apple Store website from like 2008. Yeah. Like it never got properly redesigned. It just kind of existed and got populated with new content, Um, which I guess some people appreciated. But the time has come. Okay, just pre- I would probably just pretend that the iTunes trailers stuff doesn't exist in the TV app now. I'll just pretend like it doesn't exist at all. Because I think now it's probably better to look at it on YouTube. It's probably easier, probably simpler. If somebody out there wants to make a trailers app and put it on the App Store or something for the one million people who care in the whole world, go for it. Uh, I don't think Apple particularly cares. And I kind of advocate for the TV app becoming less feature-rich in the sense of just stuffing stuff in because they clearly can't manage it in a way that makes it sensible and well-organized and easy to find stuff. And there's like no secondary navigation or toolbars or, you know, filter options. It's just like there's five tabs and then you click on a tab, you just have to scroll forever to find what you want with no consistent organization or like favorites or management or bookmarks or anything. So I would advocate for the TV app becoming less feature-packed in terms of strip everything out that isn't Apple TV+. Plus and season pass and then maybe a tab for store if you want to buy or rent and the the store tab would be self-encapsulated so like the stuff that you subscribe to isn't infected with all the random buy and rent stuff and the tv plus tab and the thingy tab would have nothing none of the other garbage in it that's probably the direction i would advocate for um which means that itunes trailers are not part of it like a perfect example is apple music tv which is a 24 7 music videos thing that they have for free that anybody can go and watch it's based like mtv of the old days right it just plays it just plays um music videos on repeat forever i did not know that was a thing 
It's in the TV app. Of course. How is anyone sane ever going to find it, right? And if you do find it, there's no way to bookmark it to find it again. So, and that 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 experience is the same for every single application feature of the TV app, including the stuff that Apple really cares about, like TV Plus, that they're funneling six billion dollars a year into. So, like, it's not like a favoritism thing. It's not like they're prioritizing one thing over the other. It's all bad. You know, TV Plus gets a tab, but that's about it. That's the only affordance you get. Everything else is like so secondary and out of the picture that nobody cares about it at all. So, I would probably say this is a bad move because I think they're taking the TV app. They can't manage a TV app that is all-encompassing and like trying to do the jack-of-all-trades. It's like jack-of-all-trades, master of none. And yeah. here they are trying to add more stuff into it. That they, I, I, This would probably upset the people who like iTunes trailers. I'd have just ditched the whole thing altogether. Looking at the iTunes Movie Trailers website, and it's it, it looks old, but functionality-wise, this is pretty good. You've got a nice breakdown of the top movies in theaters, what's opening soon. You click on a movie and it takes you just to a single page where you hit play. And this is pretty good. This makes me reminisce. Yeah, and what they've replaced it with yeah, exactly. is just a, it's just a grid of, of sorted by most you know recently released by date. There's a That's link it. to the iTunes trailers Twitter account that is now private. So you can't view anything. They had 2.3 million followers, though. Joined March of 2009. The end of an era, I guess. 2.3 million people. <laughs> you were right on the money. A couple million people. There you, go. there you go. And finally this week, Peter Stern. So what? he was the VP of services. Is that right? At Apple? Yep. And he For, left. Since 2016 yeah. through this January. This January. So he left Apple and didn't. There was no reporting on where or why he left. There was some scuttlebutt that he just wanted to spend more time with his family who lived on the other uh, side of the country. Sure, and um, that's why this week... That, is what, that was what was floated around in the background. But And you know. that's why this week Ford announced that they have hired Peter Stern to lead what they're calling the newly formed Ford Integrated Services. And I think what's interesting about this from an Apple perspective, and you touched on this the other day, Peter Stern was like in line to become a senior vice president at Apple. 100% he was meant to replace Eddie Q. And then he just up and 100%. leaves and goes to Ford. Yeah. Like, Eddie Q's getting pretty old, right? He's great. People love him. He's done good He's done good stuff. He is getting quite old. He's probably on the way out at some point, or at least it seemed like they were preparing for a pretty clean transition in the not-too-distant future because, you know, services under Peter Stern, gone leaps and bounds, done very, very well. He was the spearhead of, like, TV Plus and Apple One and the MLS season pass deal and like all sorts of stuff. Like he he couldn't really put a foot, foot wrong in that company from what I can gather. He was well regarded. Q loved him. Everybody loved him. He was pretty clearly the only candidate to replace Q's position. And then he just quit, which I don't think went down very well and actually led to a massive restructuring right. of the services division because we've spoke about this on Happy Hour before. Services used to be top down, Eddie Q, Peter Stern, and everybody else. Now the top of service is split into three. There's Oliver Schusser, who runs Apple Music and Apple TV. There's um, someone else who runs the ad division. And then there's somebody else who runs everything else. Um, whereas previously, that was all like under Stern's boat, essentially. Uh, and so I think, and I don't think that was, from what I can gather, Stern wasn't pushed out, right? Like, he chose to leave. And then they had to like scramble around him. And now he's shown up at Ford about six months later. 
uh, it's somewhat damning that he could have gone and worked. Like, he was so powerful within Apple, he could have got any job he wanted. Like, yeah. if he was border services in there, he could have gone and done whatever he wanted. And he clearly did not choose to go and work on the Apple Car project. But here he is at Ford. And this isn't the first time Ford has taken an Apple executive away. There was, what was his name? Doug Field, who was, he was at Apple, left. He was at Tesla for a while. Left right? to go to Tesla, then came back to Apple and is now at Ford, like in charge of vehicle engineering or something, like something super high level. So there's something going on where Ford likes former Apple employees and Apple employees, Apple executives like to go to Ford. And the obvious too, the tie between those two is now Peter Stern is linked back up with Doug Field and Ford did an investor call where he where Stern talked about his relationship with Doug Field and how closely they worked at Apple and how they, I think he said there'll be tied at the hip at Ford now. So that's a, it's an interesting combination of people for Ford to take from Apple. Yeah, so Ford wants to do what GM wants to do, right? Which is do more than sell cars once every five years somewhere. They want ongoing subscription revenue, which is basically what, you know, he did. He steered so well under his reign at Apple, right? You know, leading you know, um, penetration of services, including apps including app subscriptions, but yeah, Apple's own concepts as well, to way higher penetration than it was in 2016. Um, and now he's basically come to Ford to do the same thing. So, you know, we'll see how well that can be deployed because the the Apple's... Um, what's the word? Apple's encroachment on your life is way higher, I would say, than the car company is. Yeah, right, right. But they're going to try, and there's certainly some things they can charge you for, and there's some things they can do experience-wise that maybe people will want to pay for. Well, that in time that will happen, especially as cars become more and more autonomous. Um, so I can see the future there, and I think it ties directly into what I was saying about GM, right? Which is they're dropping CarPlay because they don't want to be beholden to somebody else; they want to oh, be an experience-based company. Not this again. Where they can, <laughs> it's true though, where they can make you it know is. revenue above just selling you a car, right? And basically. Ford wants to do exactly the same thing. Which, based Whether on... Whether they drop CarePlay yeah. or not is unclear. Yeah, Based on what they've said publicly, they're committed to CarPlay and they're committed to building an ecosystem that has their own software and CarPlay and Android Auto. But this announcement of Peter Stern did make me kind of wonder what's next. Ford's... During that investor call, Ford talked about how the things that they want to charge for aren't necessarily like entertainment and kind of like the quintessential services subscriptions like Peter Stern did at Apple, but rather things like autonomous features, some safety and hands-free features, and particularly like subscriptions for their Ford Pro division, which I think is like enterprise and like fleets of cars more so than individual consumers. So that still, I'm still optimistic that Ford is committed to CarPlay but one thing I did think about is whether Ford might lock CarPlay behind a subscription, which I think Apple technically allows. I think BMW does it or tried to do it. They definitely tried to do it and they got some backlash. And it's yeah. really no different. Like I have the Ford Mustang Mach-E, their EV, and to get CarPlay and to get kind of the best experience with CarPlay, you have to buy like the technology package or whatever mm. up front. And that's really no different than paying $25 a month or whatever for those same features. So I don't think this is going to be a big deal for CarPlay and Ford. I still think Peter Stern leaving Apple is a bigger deal than anything. 
I kind of see that GMs doing the kind of silly thing where they're like, you know, we need to become independent and become like a consumer company. So let's just drop CarPlay and Android and go straight in headfirst with our own stuff. Yeah. I think Ford's doing the same thing, but they're being less silly about dropping the current stuff people like while they work on the stuff to replace it, which is probably what Doug Field's job is, you know. A high level. I wonder if that's kind of where I see it, where where I see it landing. So the the short term future for CarPlay and Ford probably unchanged. Longer term future, I think it remains it remains in doubt because the future of all these car companies to continue to grow and continue to do well, they have to move beyond just selling you the car. It's the you know it's not just hardware; it's hardware, software, and services combined together, just like it is on you know everything Apple sells. And the, for a long time, they coast on just selling cars. They're going to have to sell experiences in cars, right? Right, and at some point to do that as well as you can do that to the best service of the customer experience, so it's the best way to actually get people to buy the stuff. You have to get rid of the layers of the interface that aren't your own ones, i.e., CarPlay and Android Auto. So, long term, I would definitely put some question marks on the board. I wonder if one thing we'll see car makers like Ford and others do is when next generation CarPlay is available, they'll charge you to upgrade to it, or they'll lock it behind a new premium software subscription or something because apple doesn't use or apple doesn't charge car makers to use carplay do they i do not believe so that would be a that would be a smart decision i think for the car makers even though it would kind of suck from a consumer standpoint because i would pay if if everybody starts charging for it though i can imagine apple saying well we want a piece of 30 percent 30 (laughs) percent yeah but i'm pretty sure right now they do not charge for it but because i would happily uh, pay for carplay in a ford or volkswagen or whatever then well, not even have the we'll option keep that quiet otherwise they might just do it well I'd, I'd pay gm for carplay if they'd let me but they don't <laughs> they don't want my money and they're definitely not getting any of it now i think obvious things like they could ford could partner with apple and like apple selling apple music directly from the dashboard like and they could take a car or whatever. And like, you know, Peter Stern, all the tactics that he employed at Apple bundles and, you know, all that kind of stuff. It'll all come out eventually. Like, subscription recurring revenue is like, it's like nectar to bees. It's like never ending and like incredibly attractive. So like, it just builds on top of each other. Just as we've seen happen to Apple in many, many ways, in some ways to the detriment of the, the product experience. In other ways, it's okay. But, you know, at some point you're like, have to make stuff work worse to make it in to give incentives for customers to buy than subscribe he had a quote during that ford investor call where he said when i joined apple we had two subscriptions icloud and apple music with relatively low penetration when i left we had a billion subscribers the use of subscriptions versus subscribers versus low penetration there's some like very clear choice of words going on there yeah, because and I, I, Ford's never going to have a billion subscribers. They don't have an app store. Uh, I mean, neither does Apple. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we talked about that. They last don't have week. a billion yeah. subscribers. That's why you said subscriptions. Because and most of them are from the app store, right? Like, because Apple has what, like five yeah. subscriptions now. But yes, there are technically a billion subscribers. Not to those five subscriptions, though. Yeah, there was some choice. There was some clever word choice right there. Um, Ford's never going to have to be that scale, but you know, you don't have to. Like they're just a small company in general, right? You just how many how many Fords are out there in the world? If they can sell one subscription to every Ford, that's millions of subscriptions, right? And they're not going to get everybody, but 
obviously Peter Stern believes they can get pretty high penetration to use his words so uh, one of the things Ford is going to charge for I think they just announced that they have a subscription for it is their Blue Cruise hands-free feature and it's $75 a month so obviously you don't need a billion subscribers to get some revenue when it's $75 a month or what is it $800 a year and and by the way I'm under no illusion when the Apple car eventually comes out there'll be subscriptions for that as well oh yeah They'll charge you for CarPlay. They'll charge you for CarPlay. They'll charge you for the CarPlay. <laughs> they'll give you CarPlay or whatever their inbuilt UI is. But like, if they have autonomous driving sorted out by then, they'll charge you for that on the subscription. It's just like obvious. All right. I think that does it for uh, this week. You can find us on Apple Podcasts where you can subscribe and leave us a rating and a review or on Overcast or Spotify or whatever other app you use. You can send us feedback, happyhour at 9to5mac.com. Send Mayo all of your angry, angry messages about visual voicemail in the EU and his terrible opinions <laughs> on CarPlay. And send Mayo some hate mail. Let's see. You can find me on Twitter, Mastodon and Threads, where you can send me happy stuff and tell you that you love me. At Chance H. Miller and Mayo, where are you? BZA Mayo. For all the hate mail. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Mayo. See you later.